0: Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from remoteviewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing-related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more.
1: Okay, so this evening we have the great guest, uh, Jeffrey Mishler, PhD. He's author of The Roots of Consciousness, *Psy Development Systems, and PK Man. He's also the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university. And between the years 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Allowed public TV series. And he is also past president of the Intuition Network. Uh, I'm a great fan of his work. I've been watching his videos for lo- quite a few years now. I think about six years on YouTube. Uh, he has a great YouTube channel called New Thinking Aloud. Hundreds of video interviews on there. I know a lot of you here have seen a lot of those uh, already. Um, but if you haven't, we'll put the link in the chat channels, as well. You can go and have a look at that there. So, yeah, welcome, Geoffrey. And thanks for agreeing to come along this evening and, and chat to all these interested people.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And... Uh... I'm not exactly sure what what the format is and and what your backgrounds are maybe Daz, I could ask you a, a, a couple of questions to to help orient me uh, yes. as to uh, what what the expectations are and who who I'm with how experienced is the group
1: and uh, yep. and so on I can give you a quick overview now most of us here are practicing remote viewers on one level or another uh using a multitude of disciplines um we also all connect through various platforms on the internet including facebook youtube uh reddit and discord um yeah we're at various levels i uh, uh, some of the people here i recognize uh that i you know i work with on a working level doing remote viewing uh for paid work a lot of the people here are just working as well on learning the skill from scratch. And uh, they're essentially making their first steps in, into projects like ARV and predictions. Yeah, so it's just a broad swathe of people interested in all types of intuition and psychic-based services, but mainly, mainly remote viewing.
2: Okay, well, uh, so I guess perhaps I can talk for, what, about 15, 20 minutes and then field questions?
1: Uh, yeah, or we can just go straight. Thanks to the for listening a, to The
0: Signal Line, we, we, a remote kind of viewing add, podcast. Yeah, we, we Don't forget to check these, out remoteviewed.com remote for remote viewing resources wanna... or our videos on YouTube under Remote right. Viewed.
2: Well, all right, let me just say a few things. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively short. I was first exposed to remote viewing as early as 1973. Uh, At the time, I was a graduate student studying parapsychology in Berkeley, and I was living in a very unusual um, circumstance at a a place called the Institute for the Study of Consciousness, which was set up in Berkeley by Arthur M. Young, who was the uh, founder of the Institute and the inventor of the Bell Helicopter, which was the first commercially licensed helicopter in 1947 it's the helicopter with the little glass bubble in front and two skids that it lands on and uh, Hale Putoff uh, came to speak at the institute uh, turns out that Arthur Young was actually at that time financing the research at SRI that was going on with Uri Geller <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me put off, began describing the work uh, of remote viewing, and he invited me to come and see for myself at SRI. I didn't actually get there for a few years. I think it was 1976 when I actually showed up at SRI and Right away it was a wonderful experience they they've been very successful you know at remote viewing and I have to say being in a um, well-funded uh, luxurious military industrial think tank helps because the environment at that time uh, was such that as soon as you walk into the place you get the feeling these are serious people these these are not hippies because that was the hippie era and uh, they began by uh, inviting me to join them for lunch in the cafeteria which was definitely an upscale cafeteria much better than the sort of food normally served to college students and afterwards they took me up to their laboratory they showed me their shielded room that Uh, with walls six inches thick so no radio signals could penetrate inside the room which aside from the fact that it prevents cheating I think creates a great environment for remote viewing because you don't have any subtle electromagnetic signals passing through your brain as we all do most of the time if we're not in sort of a, a shielded environment and I tend to think that Just the electronic noise in the environment creates, um, uh, well, it interferes, I think, in a subtle way with the signal-to-noise ratio for remote viewing. So basically, they said to me, there's nothing to this. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. You don't need any special preparation. You don't need any training. Everybody who comes to this lab does extremely well. And all we want you to do is go into the closed room. Uh, They had a, a researcher there, Elizabeth Rauscher, who was also a good friend of mine, physicist. And she's going to go off to a distant location, and we're going to ask you to describe where she is. And so she went off. I went into the sealed room with Russell Targ, who was my monitor. We chatted for a while. Then Russell simply said to me, ask your subconscious mind to give you permission to receive information about where Elizabeth is and what she's doing. And I I began describing uh, this. Now, actually, if you go to the New Thinking Aloud channel, there is an interview that was made about five years ago with Elizabeth, because she remembered that event very well. It was one of her first remote viewing trials also. And what happened was this. <clears throat> I... Saw in my mind's eye what what I interpreted to be a rack of clothing, so I said, "Well, we must be in Macy's," uh, and I'm looking at a rack of clothing at the clothing store. And Russell said to me, "Don't worry about your interpretation; just draw what you see," and um, which I did. The target, it turns out, it's a target you may be familiar with because. Uh, put off in Target used. It's part of their regular Target pool and has been used on other occasions. For example, with Hella Hammett, it's the highway overpass that goes over Highway 101. The picture I drew, which I interpreted as a rack of clothing, was a perfect description, almost photographic. You could place it right over the photograph of the highway overpass, but I didn't, in my intellect didn't see it as that. Nevertheless, when uh, Elizabeth came back and was asked to match it with uh, my my uh, transcript, with the picture, with a, a, a target pool, she had no problem. It was, as far as they were concerned, it was a direct hit, although it was never part of the official published remote viewing studies at SRI. It was just considered a simple trial. But so the lesson to me right off the bat was this stuff works without any effort. I figured you don't need any training. You just do it. And uh, that was fine. Now, later on, I realized that what happens to people in my experience, because I began leading workshops and training people to do remote viewing. And in my experience, I found pretty consistently what I think of as a beginner's luck effect, people their very first time often get amazingly good direct hits. But it's after that, that it begins to sink in like, oh, my God, what have I done? And uh, all sorts of I, I think of them largely as emotional issues get in the way. So there's a real big difference between being able to perform remote viewing as a professional over and over again uh, on an ongoing basis for clients or for yourself, as opposed to proving to yourself that this stuff can work. And in my case, I, I learned right off the bat, I can do it and I can show other people how to do it the first time very easily. Uh, But I didn't take it further than that, really. I never went through all of the extensive training programs. Well, actually, that's not true. I've done programs with Lynn Buchanan and Joe McMonagall and Marty Rosenblatt and so on over the years, but never really in a sustained systematic way. The, the, The way that if you talk to... Trainers today like Lori Williams, who I assume many of you will know, uh, when she describes, you know, the hard work that goes into becoming a um, professional remote viewer, I, I never went that far with it. Uh, and I think, personally, the important thing <clears throat> for each of you, or, or for anybody, is this when you're entering into this realm of psychic and spiritual functioning the important thing for each individual the way i like to phrase it is to become the best version of yourself and for some of you that's going to mean being a professional remote viewer in my case it took me in different directions and i'm you know i'm very happy with those directions i'm under the impression that The way the universe works, ultimately, is that when you are working to become the best version of yourself, which is going to be different for every person, the universe will help you. And it could be by uh, giving you accurate information about a remote viewing target. It could be through synchronicities or dreams. I've had many dreams and synchronicities that have guided my career along the way in, in uncanny ways. So uh, that's, that's basically my message Uh, and I'll stop here and I'm, I'm happy to just field whatever questions you have. Uh, I like to tell people, you know, give me your hardest
1: questions. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Well, I think you answered some of mine um, straight off the bat there, but, I just want to share something with you. That that very same un- overpass that you looked at, uh, it's famously recorded by Hela Hamid as well. And um, I was uh, I interviewed Lance Mangia recently, who did the uh, documentary Third Eye Spies. Um, because uh, I heard him on a radio interview two years ago talk about something specific. And essentially the story is that whilst they were making Third Eye Spies documentary, they re-unearthed that original uh, audio footage of Hella talking about the overpass, and what they realized is that um when she's going through the audio, it didn't exactly match the outward bounder person who was there at the time, which was how put off what they think now because on the audio tape she's talking about someone that stumbles around and who's got a hunch position, and they're trying to move around these stops in the middle of the path, which didn't exist when they did the experiment in the seventies. Is that they're now thinking that she actually remote viewed when they were making the documentary a few years ago, and it was Russell Targ that was there, uh, because you know he was he was you know he's very blind and he, he was stumbling around, he was hunched, he was feeling a little bit ill that day and he was hunched up, so that's mind boggling in itself because you know it's it's many years after she died that apparently now she remote viewed that very same underpass.
2: Yeah, that's quite interesting. I, I didn't know
1: about that. Yeah, it's an amazing story that is. Um, excellent. But we got loads of questions here and uh, uh, someone you interviewed recently, John Knowles, is the first with his hands up here.
3: Hi, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much for that interview. I'll try to give you a hard question, too. You were asking me some uh, questions that, uh, uh, you know, led to my basic beliefs. So I want to ask you that. But first, I want to ask you because it gets a lot of flack. Ed May gets a lot of flack in the remote viewing community. And I'm a huge defender of Ed, even though he's a self-described curmudgeon. And, and I, I wondered what your estimate of him was. And then the other part of it was, uh, do you think uh, that the consciousness is the fundamental like Marty Rosenblatt does? So that's two quick questions. Thank you. Oh, okay,
2: With, those are great questions, John. Thank you. Ed May is, uh, I regard Ed as a good friend I'm very fond of him. He's won awards for his contributions to parapsychology. He's made amazing contributions. Um, I, you know, have nothing but praise for Ed May, but I do disagree with him about some points. He calls himself a physicalist and he claims that he would give up his physicalist viewpoint, if somebody could convince him of survival, life after death. I happen to think the evidence for survival is extremely strong. I think that Ed gives it short shrift, but I don't think that the evidence for survival is actually sufficient to overcome a physicalist or materialist interpretation, because you could go this route, which is, is um, was published, uh, I think, in the 1880s by a couple of physicists, Guthrie and Tate, Scottish physicists, as I recall, in which they argue, from the point of view of 19th century physics that all you need is higher dimensions of space, more dimensions of space than three, which actually... Uh, is very normal in physics these days. If you look at the work in super string theory, people routinely talk about 11 or or 12 dimensions. So if you're willing to add extra dimensions to the uh, four dimensional space time manifold we normally think of um, in conventional space, then, then you can accommodate even life after death within a physicalist framework. Nevertheless, there are real problems with physicalism, uh, to my point of view, and materialism. Many people think of it as a philosophical dead end at, at this point in time. One of the problems simply is it doesn't account for consciousness adequately. And in fact, according to David Chalmers, Uh, you have what they call the hard problem of consciousness, which is you just can't get there using dead matter as as the basis for it. Nobody has come up with a satisfactory explanation as to how consciousness would magically emerge from little dead billiard ball type particles bouncing around or or even waves and, and fields. So, Uh, people who hold to the physicalist point of view basically say, don't worry about that. Eventually, we'll get there. Uh, There's also a problem with dualism, uh, which many people uh, subscribe to, including some great neurologists like Sir John Eccles and Wilder Penfield. The problem with dualism is how do, do two metaphysical substances mind and matter that are completely distinct interact with each other and Ed May has been very vocal about that he says it's hard enough for a neutrino which is a physical particle to interact with any other physical particle a neutrino could pass right through the whole planet without any interactions at all so uh Considering that, how do you expect if mind is a completely separate intellectual entity, how could it interact with matter? So I lean towards an idealistic metaphysics, uh, metaphysical idealism, for that reason. I think uh, logically it uh, eliminates the hard problem, it eliminates the problem of how mind and matter interact with each other. It's consistent with the perennial philosophy that's been described by people like Houston Smith and Aldous Huxley that seems to be uh, what mystics in every era and culture uh, point towards and subscribe to. So I lean in that direction, but I have to admit, we don't have a final answer yet. And if it turns out that... uh, Materialism uh, is ultimately uh, the best explanation. We'll have to expand what we mean by time and space and consciousness, but uh, it could be done within a materialistic framework. My dissertation advisor when I was a graduate student at Berkeley was a philosopher named Michael Scriven, who was a materialist best I can tell, a a pragmatic materialist, and he used to, very open to parapsychology, and he said that materialism is, it's like imperialism. Uh, It has an imperialistic hold on academia, and so that no matter what new challenges come up that that challenge the materialistic paradigm. It will modify itself just enough to accommodate those challenges, and and I expect you'll see that kind of uh, a, a lot of creativity of that sort coming from materialists who say, you know, all we have to do is tweak our understandings of time and space a little bit, and and then everything will come together. Uh, but as, as I say, I think that. Uh, Metaphysical idealism, particularly as it's been espoused by Bernardo Castrup, who in the last decade has written, I think 11 or 12 books on the subject, uh, uh, is a very attractive point of view. Uh, Even though it goes against the grain of culture and logic, it's hard for most people to imagine that what we experience through our senses is, how can I put it? The way Bernardo would say it is that what we experience through the senses is so seductive that we take it to be the only reality. It's not the only reality at all. And, and Bernardo would say it's very real. He doesn't deny as an idealist the existence of the external world. He simply will tell you, what we think of as matter is actually all made out of what you
3: could call mentality or mind stuff. Thanks for that very clear and detailed answer. We could talk about this for hours, I'm sure, but I will exit right now because it could go on for hours. Thank you, Jeff.
1: Thanks, guys, and thanks, John, for the question. Uh, David, you had your hand up next. Hi, Jeff. Um, Um,
4: So... Uh, you've explained a little bit in your opening words about why remote viewing has a bit of a special place in your heart. Um, but with New Thinking Allowed, you've interviewed people from a very broad range of, um, I suppose you could say, more subjective disciplines where there there isn't the blinding and the scientific approach to say that you have an RV so I wonder, what do you think we can learn as individuals, trying to um, discern, you know, the, the the aspects of existence which are outside of the immediate physical world? What can we learn from remote viewing that we can't learn from those perhaps more subjective modalities?
2: Well. Uh, Remote viewing, uh, as I understand it, and uh, you probably have experiences that I don't even know about uh, uh, and have never heard of, uh, taking remote viewing in different directions. But basically, I think of it as falling within the scientific paradigm. You're looking for proof, uh, although Proof is is really not quite the right word either because, as my friend Stan Krippner says, proof exists in in alcohol and and in mathematics. It doesn't really exist in science. So what what you're really looking for is evidence, not proof. But in any case, uh, following the scientific method, as we see all around us in, in our culture, we are able to get a much better handle on the facts than you can otherwise. Now, I happen to think that a lot of work in remote viewing is not scientific at all. I, for example, interviewed several interviews, and I'm sure many of you know Angela Thompson-Smith, one of the founders of the International Remote Viewing Association has published a book co-published with Scott Jones, as I recall, on her remote viewing of maybe 20 or 30 different alien species. And I've also talked to her about her remote viewing at ancient Atlantis. And I don't regard that work as scientific. I regard it more in what you described as a uh, intuitive approach because it, there's no possibility, at least in the current era, of getting empirical feedback. And empirical feedback uh, in science as it's normally thought of means through the five senses, ultimately. So if, if Angela you know, does remote viewing with a conventional target, you, you can compare her viewing with, five, with sensory experience of the same target. However, it actually gets much more complex because William James, the great founder of American psychology, a great contributor to psychical research, his final contribution was an essay in which he called Radical Empiricism. And by radical empiricism, What William James basically said is is that um, the most direct experience that every person has is not through the senses. The most direct experience is our own consciousness. It's through our own consciousness that we then interpret what we experience through the senses. So it's even more direct than sensory experience, and therefore the experiences that we have directly through our consciousness should be considered empirical and should not be thrown out and excluded from science. Uh, So that opens a big door, but then the problem is How do you distinguish, let's say, let's take Angela Smith's remote viewing of aliens as an example. How do you distinguish those remote viewings from what might otherwise simply be considered a question of creative fantasy? And, you know, conventional empirical methods allow you to do that. But if you want to view targets that are not amenable to verification using the five senses, then you've got to uh, engage yourself in what William James calls radical empiricism, which he believes should be incorporated into the scientific method. And he wrote about that 100 and, over 110 years ago. The problem is 110 years later, we're still developing the tools to do that. So in Angela's case, she says, I place a high confidence on my remote viewings of alien entities and on uh, personalities who lived in ancient Atlantis because I'm an experienced remote viewer and I have an appreciation for the way things feel when they register in my consciousness. And when I had the remote viewing encounters with alien entities, it had a certain feeling to it that I attribute to reality. It's different than when I have a fantasy. And it's at that level there, which has to do with a... um, a faculty that in religious terms would be called discernment. Ultimately, uh, I'm not a Christian myself, but uh, it comes up in the Christian literature. How do you tell a real prophet from a false prophet? And the answer is you have to develop the ability to discern the difference. And how do you develop that ability? That ability is developed inwardly through your own conscious evolution. It's not an ability that uh, is easily trained, I suppose, or uh, that, that is amenable to co- the conventional scientific method. But this ability of discernment seems very, very important uh, in remote viewing work and in, in, and in life in general. Frankly, uh, it goes, there there are too many situations that we all have to confront on a day-to-day basis for which we simply can't rely on the scientific method. It's too inconvenient and oftentimes simply not possible, even if we had the resources. So ultimately, cultivating this very elusive quality known as discernment is what's gonna make the difference between, I think, a successful remote viewer and one who is displacing, for example, or is uh, having trouble in in other regards.
4: Thank you, that's an absolutely wonderful answer. Um, I, I was tasked to remote view the next Um, landing of an astronaut on planet Mars uh, a little while ago. And the session went quite normally. It was red. It was extremely boring. And then it got very weird. And I described a Stargate just like the TV show. And uh, speaking of discernment, I don't buy my session. I don't believe that. (laughs) You know, but there is there is some factor out there. Where which introduces noise and fantasy and weirdness alongside the feedbackable physical ground truth?
2: There's a lot of interesting work in Jungian psychology, in um, ancient Sufi philosophy as well, about um, the distinction between what they refer to as the imaginary versus the imaginal and the imaginary, I think we understand that creative fantasy, uh, which is a natural human ability. Everybody can do that. And uh, it's a very important ability as well. That's the basis of great literature and art and uh, many creative uh, inventions. But the imaginal is a realm that's very real, the philosopher Henri Corbin has written about it in great depth uh, based on his studies of a, I believe it was a 10th century Sufi master named Suravardi. And um, he believed that Suravardi from the other plane actually initiated him into Sufism and that it wasn't his imagination, that it was very real. Uh, And I've talked to many people, shamanistic practitioners of various stripes uh, as well, who tell me how they engage with spiritual entities who are real and that they are able to make a distinction between a real entity in the spirit world and one that is just uh, concocted out of their imagination. Uh, But they would also tell you that to cultivate that distinction Takes years of practice.
4: Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I'll I'll let somebody else take a turn now. That was a wonderful answer.
0: Yeah,
1: great, uh, great question and answers there. Thanks for that, guys. Uh, Don, you had your hand up next.
0: Okay, Uh, let's see. So, I was watching uh, an interview you had with Ed
1: May. Uh, last
0: night, and uh, you said these words. You were talking about um, PSI-mediated information. You're nodding your head. It actually, okay, good. Is,
2: the word is PSI. It's not spelled out. It's, it's PSI. Pretty, yeah, it's, but to call it PSI implies that it's an acronym of some sort, which it is not.
0: I always thought it was. Okay, so thank you. All right, so here we go. So these were the words you said to him. Uh, It's fair to say then that if there is an interface interface between the nervous system and the psi-mediated information, that interface may be receiving information from everywhere in space and time simultaneously. And the act of setting an intention Reduces what the mind-brain processor is willing to accept. Very well chosen words. In fact, Ed complimented you on this and said you should uh, write his uh, 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 what, what was it his um, introduction or something like that. At least. So okay. So if that is true then all of us right now are exposed to the infinity of all time and space and we're receiving information from everywhere simultaneously, right? Yeah. So why don't we realize that? That's my first question.
2: Okay. Well, excuse me if I fumble around for a moment. I think the basic answer is biological. We are biological entities. We are part of what some people would call the great chain of being. We are mammals. We are primates. And if we look at other creatures, you'll see that their nervous systems are designed for survival. And, And our early ancestors were great at survival. Every living creature is here because they can survive which means, for example, let's take a frog. We're not that different from frogs. We're vertebrates, just like the frogs are. Um, A frog is very good at catching bugs. Their nervous system is designed so if they see something black flying around in front of them, their tongue will go right out, you know, catch that fly and they'll eat it. But their nervous system isn't good for many other things. You can take a frog as an example, you probably know this, it's a well-known example. Put the frog in a pot of water and put the water on uh, the, the stove as it heats up gradually. The frog's nervous system doesn't really detect the gradual warming of the water. So the frog, to my understanding, will stay there until the water is boiling and the frog is killed for that reason, because the the nervous system of the frog was just not, that was never an issue that frogs had to deal with while they were evolving. And the same thing with our nervous system.
0: So our, um,
2: our brain it's designed to, to give us the information that we need to, to get by in the physical world and no more because we'd be overwhelmed.
0: So, uh, Right, so the overwhelming thing. All right, you know what an interference pattern is, right? You've got waves, they hit each other and they cancel parts, right? So if we're all being bombarded fry all space and time, I'm, I'm just wondering, if there could be some sort of interference pattern going on created by all of this information, the past, present, and future all hitting us, coming in from all over the universe, creating a net zero effect, meaning we don't see it because it cancels it itself all out. What do you think of that?
2: Uh, I don't, well, I'd like to consider it, but my first thought, is that it's probably not true. And the reason is you get the testimony of people who have the occasional experience called cosmic consciousness. There's a book by that title that was written by a psychiatrist back in the 1890s. His name is on the tip of my tongue, it'll come. But uh, these people report being simultaneously aware of everything at once. It's a rare experience, it's a brief experience, but there are enough reports about it and in enough, sufficient detail uh, for me to give it credibility. And I think the way that it works, you see, is that the brain, which acts as a filter, the brain, the normal job of the brain is to keep you from being overwhelmed by all of that. But you can shut that function of the brain off. It sometimes shut off, through drugs, if you take psychedelic drugs, we now see it turns off areas of the brain rather than the researchers expected psychedelic drugs would enhance the um, functioning, the metabolic functioning of the brain, just the opposite. So uh, what by, by turning the brain off, consciousness itself can open up to this wider vista. People who have near-death experiences also report uh, on occasion, this experience of cosmic consciousness. So uh, I'm inclined to think that these, uh, that we're just unaware of it, not that they cancel out.
0: Okay, all right. But I do uh... think
2: there are interference patterns that if we could see reality as it truly is, as William Blake, the poet wrote, uh, when the doors of perception are cleansed, we will see reality as it truly is, infinite.
0: All right, well, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, that guys. Next up with our hand was Sasha. Hi there.
5: Um, I want to follow up on what... um, Don was saying about your interview with Ed May. Mm -hmm. Um, You were talking about the models uh, for this interface between, I guess, our conscious awareness and this information stream. And um, we were talking about it a little bit on Facebook. And I brought up this idea of the cocktail party effect. So if you're at a noisy party, there's a lot of noise. You're in a conversation with someone that you're engaged with. your brain will filter out all the noise from all the conversations going on around you so that you can pick up the conversation, that the, the speech from the person that you're attending to um, and hear them very clearly, even though the person right behind you might be at the same distance from you and you're not hearing anything uh, of what they're saying unless they say your name. And all of a sudden that information is processed, the meaning for it is processed because there might be a concatenation of syllables uh, from different conversations in the room that come up to make your name but you don't hear that that doesn't draw your attention. It's only when you hear someone who's saying your name and and it's not uh, an accidental um, putting together of those syllables And so th- what that implies is that your brain is constantly processing for meaning even at the most basic level And when um, words, information stimuli that's that's relevant to you uh, come through that filtering process that, that is processing for meaning, um, then that's when, okay, that's brought to your conscious attention because it's marked as something that's relevant to you. Because it's not just your name, it's also certain swear words, words having to do with sex, uh, there's a there's a whole category of things that will we'll, we'll kind of push through that filter. Um, and so I know that in psychology, they really wanted to think that your brain filters out noise. And then when it decides what's relevant sounds um, in on the noise, then it applies the meaning filter. But they found that that's not the case that when they tested it, they found no we seem to be filtering, we seem to be processing meaning in in all the information around us, and then filtering out anything that isn't in, important to us. And I'm wondering how that might apply to remote viewing, because it's, it's a similar effect, whereas we think, okay, when I'm remote viewing, then I'm intending to pick up this other information that I normally uh, filter out. The problem with that is sometimes you're not intending to remote view, but information that's meaningful to you does get through your conscious awareness, right? If someone is uh, in trouble and they kind of call out to you and you you hear them, you give them a phone call to see what's wrong. Um, So that does suggest that we're constantly processing or monitoring that information stream For information that's urgently relevant to us right and so i think so i wanted kind of your thoughts on that on because the that interview was five years ago has there been any progress in the last five years of of researching that interface and and trying to find not just this idea that there's an inhibitory response but maybe that 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 happens at a higher level that first we're having to process meaning in that information stream and then we're inhibiting Everything that that isn't important to us, right? So that we let through the the information about our loved one in crisis. What an
2: interesting question! Uh, Thank you for that, Uh, an exposition. Now you're referring to research that I'm not familiar with, and I I don't really have the time or energy to keep up with research and and brain studies and uh, things like that. So. You know, that what you're saying is new to me, but here's what it does suggest. The idea uh, is very interesting. Um, I have heard this because we have, uh, I've heard various estimates that the brain has somewhere between, let's say, a billion and a hundred billion neurons. And each neuron has as many as 10,000 axons and dendrites all attached or uh, to other neurons. So it's, it's an incredible network. And in fact, what that means is that there are more neural pathways in a single human brain than there are subatomic particles in the entire known physical universe, right? which, you know, suggests that possibly the brain is capable of doing what what you're suggesting, scanning the entire universe for meaning. Uh, I doubt if most of us have that capacity, uh, but maybe theoretically it is possible. Uh, But the, the truth is, to my knowledge, the kind of studies that would be necessary to really get at this, and especially as regards remote viewing, information have never been done Uh, we're not even close to doing them we don't have the, the resources have yet to be allocated I look forward to the day when hundreds of colleges and universities across the world have departments of parapsychology that can do this kind of research but that's probably well into the future yeah okay thank
5: you
1: Thanks, guys. Excellent questions again. Um, do you have anything else, Sasha, or should we move on to someone else?
5: Uh, no, you can move on. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Thanks on that. Uh, Niam, you're up next then. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for
6: uh, coming out to do this. Um, one of my favorite interviews or interviewees that you've talked to is Stanley Krippner. Um, you know, the dream studies, and, and in particular, you did the talk about skepticism and like scoffing, kind of like the the, the, the differences that, that come about with that. I just wanted to uh, hear your thoughts on, you know, how do you see that affecting this? Like you've been in this field for a while, you know, do you think that whole conundrum has held us back and kind of tying into that last comment you made on the last question, into the future, um, you know, how do you see that uh, affecting uh, consciousness studies in general?
2: Well, I'm optimistic. And of course, society is always changing, it has always changed, and it will continue to change. Stanley Krippner is an amazing person. He just won an award. It was announced, I think, yesterday. Uh, he won the mentorship award from the Parapsychological Association. And he was extremely helpful to me. He inspired me to go into the field when I first heard him speak back in 1970. And uh, he continues to constantly offer encouragement and help to, I think, probably hundreds, if not thousands of people today Uh, with regard to the possibility of, future studies in in the field and overcoming the the skepticism that holds things back. And and the skeptics have been very ruthless and and vicious about trying to uh, thwart research in in the field. I had skeptics who tried to uh, pressure the University of California to withdraw my doctoral diploma in parapsychology after it had already been awarded. Uh, So I know firsthand the kind of uh, underhanded things they're willing to do. Nevertheless, I think that they serve an important social function, uh, skepticism of this sort. And that is that if society were all of a sudden, if we were to wake up tomorrow morning and discover, oh, everybody is telepathic, it would create... I suspect enormous chaos. It has to happen gradually in order for it to be integrated into human culture. And um, it's not happening fast enough to suit me, but then again, I'm not the final judge of things. And I do think that eventually the skepticism is gonna be worn down because the evidence isn't going away. And you can argue till the cows come home that this is impossible. It must be all uh, sloppy thinking or fraud. But when the evidence keeps reaffirming itself over and over and over and over again, eventually the skepticism uh, cannot be sustained, even though, you know, over the short run, it can be just like Donald Trump these days has got more than 50% of the Republican Party convinced that uh, he lost the uh, last presidential election uh, because of of cheating, even though he wasn't able to sustain that argument in court. He lost 60 court cases, but his followers will still believe him. And uh, the same is true with the people who believe the skeptics who say, it doesn't matter what evidence they claim because it's impossible. And so they must be wrong. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think it's very significant that, for example, in the year 2018, three years ago, the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, which is typically uh, an organization hostile to parapsychology, published a very important landmark article by Etzel Cardenia, who at the time was the editor of the Journal of Parapsychology, reviewing the history of the field, covering meta-analyses that included over 1,400 different experiments showing that they were well-conducted, that uh, even as the rigor of the experimental methodology increased the results didn't drop off, and, and that the results are statistically overwhelming, astronomically significant when it comes to statistics. The the skeptics responded basically by saying it doesn't matter how good the evidence is, we still won't believe it. But, you know, th- that's an argument that any sophomore philosophy student can see through.
6: Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in a similar opinion that, you know, the evidence just keeps piling up. So it's just, it's just, uh, it's just uh, you know, keep pushing forward, basically.
2: My expectation is that it's going to take time. And uh, one thing we don't know is how much time the human race has, because we're sort of on the precipice of all kinds of uh, potential ways that that we now have to uh, exterminate ourselves but if the human race does survive in another it could be 50 it could be a few hundred or a few thousand years sooner or later the pendulum will change and uh, people who are engaged in remote viewing and parapsychology like yourselves will not be at the fringes of culture you'll be at the center.
6: Thank you.
1: Thanks for those ones, guys. Uh, Up next is, oh, I can't read the name there in in its entirety, but I'll go with Erica.
7: Yeah, thank you. It is Erica. It's my previous Zoom name for some different, very serious meeting. Uh, Thank you very much for the comparison about the frog and uh, how possibly our um, sensations are also limited, probably due to evolution. I mean, I love that comparison. And um, explained in very simple words, uh, pretty complex thing. My question to you would be, from all the experiences and knowledge you have, how much do you think actually there's nurture? And how much do you think there's nature component in all of this? What if we had a small, young human being, let's say a child, and we wanted, and we would want to develop the capabilities instead of just killing them off, which kind of naturally happens once the kid starts to go to the uh, kindergarten and then to the school and so forth. So how much do you think there's nurture? How much there's nature? And if you might have maybe some examples from real life, Um, for example, like in um, Shaolin, like in China, I think it was in China, Shaolin monks, they've been specifically trained from age six. So, I mean, they're developing their slightly different abilities, but what is your take on that? Thank you. Uh,
2: Excellent question, once again. And I used to think nature nurtures probably 50-50. These days, I'm much more inclined to uh, the nurture side. And the reason is because of some interviews I've done recently with Kenneth Pelletier, who's an old friend of mine, a person who has been involved in parapsychology a long time, but he's one of the pioneers in the field of, it's now called integrative medicine. It used to be called mind-body medicine and the like. But the topic we talked about is called epigenetics. It's a new field, it's maybe 20 years old. And the data of epigenetics shows that we we are not limited by our genetic makeup we can actually change our genes by changing the what are called telomeres, that are uh, certain molecules that attach themselves to genes and are responsible for whether the genes get turned on or turned off. And uh, it now appears, based on all of this research in epigenetics, that what we used to think of as a scientific heresy called Lamarckian genetics is actually true. And Lamarck was a a geneticist back uh, at the very, I think in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who said that uh, learned behavior gets passed on through the genes. That now appears to be the case, uh, which is why it's so important for each and every person to, as I say, become the best version of yourself, because that's what you can pass on. Those are the genes that enabled you the genetic makeup, uh, including the uh, epigenetic makeup that allowed you to become the best version of yourself in every way, in terms of your health, in terms of your relationships, in terms of your career. Uh, when, when you develop yourself that way, you can actually pass those genes on to your offspring. So uh, that's an awful strong argument for the nurture side of the equation.
7: Thank you, I was expecting you would mention epigenetics. So yeah, that's pretty exciting, I think. Thank you.
1: Thanks, guys, on that one. And next up was Deborah.
8: jeffrey um i've watched a lot of your shows and i really like what you're doing um i'm thinking of the shows that i watched with adam crabtree and how he talks about hypnagogia and you know he actually works in toronto where i live i'm trying to get in contact with him but you know, he talks about this worm that he has had this relationship with. And I had this moth come up on my Facebook feed when I was learning about this. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, so I wanna get in touch with him, but what I'm wondering is how hypnagogia relates to the say, imaginal versus the signal from RV. Like, how do you see that fitting in?
2: Uh, yeah hypnagogia is a wonderful word it has to do with uh the state of consciousness that we all experience very briefly as we're falling asleep it's sort of half awake half asleep and you're getting dream-like imagery but you're still somewhat conscious almost like lucid dreaming and and i think it's uh a very important state of consciousness. Adam Crabtree describes it beautifully in his uh, book, Hypnagogia. And uh, I did an interview not long ago with Gary Lachman, who was a historian of esoteric traditions. And he looked at, uh, for example, Emanuel Swedenborg, an interesting person, a great scientist, and engineer, who wrote volumes about his communications with entities in the spirit world. And according to Adam Crabtree, it's because he had the rare ability to enter that hypnagogic state and to stay in it, which is something that can be cultivated. Now it's even then it's hard to distinguish between fantasy and the imaginal realities that exist. And and not only is it hard to distinguish, but it's probably because that realm, the realm of mind stuff, or some people might call it, let's say the astral plane, it doesn't operate by the same rules as the physical plane operates. It's much more flexible. And uh, we have all sorts of of, of creative capabilities like... um, In the Tibetan tradition, you can conjure up what they call a tulpa. It's it's a creature, you could say, created out of imagination, but then it takes on an autonomous, independent existence of of its own. So what, what I'm saying is the boundaries between what we call the imaginal and what we call the imaginary, it's not as if there's a hard and fast boundary between them, but... In any case, entering into the hypnagogic state, which is, I think, something that remote viewers are actually doing, although there's there's so many subtleties to these states of consciousness, whether you call it hypnagogia or guided meditation or relaxation or, as Carl Jung called it, creative visualization. uh, We don't have yet an adequate map of all of these states of consciousness and what they're capable of doing. We're like the people who lived in the um, early 1400s who had just the vaguest understanding that there were worlds out there uh, past the Atlantic uh, Ocean, that there are other continents that have yet to be explored.
8: Wow, that's wonderful. And, um, you know, I actually think John Vivanco describes seeing a topa in one of his RV sessions, guarding the site and not letting him in. And um, um, thank you so much for that. Uh, because I just, um, I, w- I guess it's a matter of discernment then, too, to, dis- to s- distinguish between a hypnagogic entity and something that's real so that would be something to look out for Mm -hmm. in rv and um i don't think i've experienced anything hypnagogic yet but i i'm considering it as a total possibility because i have an imagination so i want to be ready to discern you know what i need to discern so thank you jeffrey it's really nice
1: to meet you Likewise. Thank you. Excellent questions and ask, Christ. Thanks for those ones. And Don's come back with another one.
0: Okay. Um, so, Jeffrey, uh, when I was at the IRVA conference, I had a talk with Tom McNear. We were talking about um, consciousness. And uh, I told him that I believed, you know, through my experience, what I perceived through remote viewing and through other experiences that, you know, everything seemed to have consciousness. And I think that fits under the panpsychism um, description. You know, there's consciousness in the walls and the tables and everything, really. And uh, I asked him what his opinion was, and he said, well, I believe everything is consciousness. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But then you just mentioned another one earlier, which was metaphysical idealism. Um, Can you sort of differentiate a little bit some of these ideas?
2: I'll I'll try. I'm not an expert, but uh, panpsychism is a major philosophical uh, viewpoint, and it does differ from metaphysical idealism uh, in some subtle ways. Uh, And of course, It's tricky because when you get into the woods, you'll discover there are many different schools of metaphysical idealism and many different schools of thought of panpsychism. And there are other versions as well, like hylozoism, which is the opinion that everything is alive. Very similar. So the idea of metaphysical idealism is that Consciousness came first. At one time, there was nothing but consciousness. Uh, if you read the Rig Veda, there is a hymn, uh, a creation hymn. And uh, it goes like, a, in the beginning, there was just one consciousness, and it got lonely. So out of desire, this one consciousness created the physical world. Or it's not so different from Genesis. God created the world. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, Panpsychism is a little different. Uh, Panpsychism is the viewpoint that would say that uh, every particle, every subatomic particle has a component of consciousness, that it's part of it. You could say that there's a... um, uh, trying to think of the word some people use
0: like a it's integrated into it
2: yeah yeah that that, um let's suppose there's a consciousness particle like we'll call it a mind on that every subatomic particle also has a mind on with it so so that every little particle is also a conscious entity it's both a physical entity and a conscious entity, whereas metaphysical idealism would say, yeah, it seems physical, we think of it as physical, it's a very seductive viewpoint, but it's really all consciousness, there's nothing but consciousness.
0: So, so metaphysical idealism is agreeing that everything is consciousness. Yeah. It is some sort of, you know, what we perceive as uh, as hard walls and you know desks and whatever is is consciousness, right? I mean, I'm I'm really right. having trouble wrapping well, my I'm, head around this, you right? Gotta,
2: you got to you got to read several books by the proponents of each of these words to understand what they each mean by the word. So, a panpsychist might say, for example, that. A, um, a rock is conscious. Uh, or they might say a, even a particle, a particle is conscious. That's different than saying that it's uh, composed of mind stuff. It doesn't make it make it a conscious entity. Being a conscious entity is different than being composed of uh, some kind of mental process.
0: Oh, I see the point. Okay, it's made of mind stuff, is the idea.
2: Okay. And, and only mind stuff, that there's nothing else but mind stuff. Whereas a panpsychist might say, yeah, the physical world is real. It's really physical, uh, but it also has a component. Uh, but, you know, when you talk to panpsychists, their, their view is, is actually much more subtle than that. And um, I did, Christian De Quincey is a panpsychist who I've interviewed. Uh, Philip Goff is a panpsychist whom I've interviewed. And if, if you get into the details of their philosophy, it's very different than the metaphysical idealism of Bernardo Castro.
0: So, that, the, so the idea here is panpsychists, including myself, believe that there is a physical thing and a mental thing, and somehow they come together. Whereas the metaphysical idealist, it's all consciousness to begin with, nothing has to come together, since it already is one thing already.
2: Yeah, that, I, you know, that's my shorthand way of saying it. But I have a feeling that if you were to repeat that to anybody else, they would
1: start arguing.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's answered my basic question. Thank
1: you very much. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, John Knowles is back again.
3: Yeah, maybe to, to take a little break from all this philosophy and raise something that's rather delicate, but um, I really you know, uh, esteem you, to Jeff, and everything you do. And there's this issue of this Jason Giorgiani that came up. Uh, so I don't know if you want to talk about that, but just briefly, Giorgiani was invited to the APP conference. Uh, I met him. Um, he was there. I don't know if he gave a talk or not. Um and there's some rather controversial aspects of Jason Giorgiani. So I'd like, maybe Jeff, you could just explain that and where you come down on that. Because I know people have not invited him back and there's certain reasons they have for that. If you don't mind, if you don't want to talk about it. He was it.
2: invited to the Applied Precognition, is that what you're saying?
3: Yes, and he was there in 2017 or 16, I forget which. Oh,
2: I recommended him. Okay. And my, my, I, He must have been there a year that I wasn't because I don't remember him being there. I, I do remember recommending him at the time. I remember Marty Rosenblatt refusing to invite him because he said at the time, Jason had already been slandered or, to be precise, libeled uh, for and accused of, of being a Nazi, basically. and. I at that time uh, didn't accept that. I you know I've done thirty five interviews with Jason and uh, they're among the most popular interviews on the New Thinking Aloud channel and I considered him a a controversial thinker, even a dangerous thinker as he would like to characterize himself. But I basically thought of Jason as uh a humanist, maybe in the tradition of someone like Nietzsche, uh, who was very critical of society. Now, subsequently, I've had a falling out with Jason, and it occurred because, uh, first of all, I was trying to raise money for Jason because he was libeled and he got he lost his teaching job at the California, the New Jersey Institute of Technology. So I was helping him out raising money. But then I saw that he had gone on YouTube and issued a, um, what can I call it? A a declaration that we must destroy China. And i personally a, a pacifist. I don't believe in war as a way to solve our problems. And uh, Jason does. well, And I've known that all along. But I didn't think he was going to go so far as to be what I have to characterize as a warmonger. So I called him on it. And I I published an in-presence monologue in which I said Jason's behavior is is the epitome of warmongering. And and I have to separate myself from it. but I, at that time, thought, well, fine. So it's a, we. I, he's my good friend, it's a difference of opinion. And uh, Jason is welcome to come on New Thinking Aloud. We'll have an interesting discussion on whether or not uh, war is a good thing for humanity. I'm quite comfortable defending the pacifist position. And I know he feels comfortable defending the other point of view. So, uh, However, Jason took it as a slap in the face. And he immediately uh, began launching personal attacks on me, unrelated to this controversy about war, and uh, has broken off all communication with me uh, since then. So, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Jason is a Well, I've had to take a second look. It's caused me to reevaluate my relationship with Jason and uh, to take a harder look at some of the things that he's been espousing since then. And uh, in, in a way, at this point, I think he's doing me a big favor by cutting off all communication.
3: I'd like to add a little bit to that if I could so that people are aware that, that Marty did, in fact, invite him. He did come uh, and was, I met him, you know, I met him when Steve Browdy was there and uh, talked and he seemed very impressive, but then I learned more about his background. And the objection, uh, which you didn't mention, was that he was associated with Richard Spencer for some time in terms of a very pro-Trump, very white supremacist approach. And that was the one of the criticism. That was the main criticism, as well as some anti-Semitism, as you are no doubt familiar with. So I think people need to know that. And I hadn't heard about this uh, latest developments. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and it's unfortunate. The guy's brilliant, right? I mean, he's, and you've been a friend with him for a long time, and people are very po- very popular with his interviews. Um, but there are these uh, other factors that people should be aware of. I think. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
2: At this point, my attitude has been, and in my last monologue about Jason, I think it's very important for people to be aware of what people like Jason are saying because they're having an influence, but I don't encourage anybody to become a follower of of that line of thought. The reason to be aware of it is to oppose it rather than to
1: join in. Excellent questions, guys. Uh, I'm going to ask you one of mine at the moment, if that's right, Jeffrey, um, I read your book um, about uh, Ted Owens, the P- the PK man. I'm not sure if everyone's uh, read that book here, so it'd be great if we could get a bit of an overview on, on that from you. Um, because I think that there's, a, there's an amazing uh, connection between uh, humans that have great ability and... Uh, I guess, an ET, an ET ufo connection. You know, uh, the guy in your book, Ted Owens, has this uh, ability. But we also know that Yori Getter, for example, says that he has all his ability because he had a, a UFO encounter. And in fact, there are several books in the early days of, of Yori's career where uh, it details quite a lot of UFO and alien kind of, uh, I would say interference in a way. So yeah, I would, yeah, if you could uh, outline the, the book and, and those experiences a bit, because I think that's really important to what we're doing with remote viewing because no matter who we are as remote viewers, every time we're all targeted on projects like the moon and Mars and places like that, we all seem to report uh, strange, uh, what I would class is non-human uh, artifacts.
2: Mm. Uh, okay, well, it actually it all started that very same occasion when I went to SRI International uh, to visit Putoff and Targ, and I did my first remote viewing experiment because when I was there, they were all abuzz about this fellow Ted Owens who had been writing to them. Back then, they had achieved some notoriety for their work with Uri Geller, and Ted Owens was badgering them, sending them letters constantly saying, in effect, why are you wasting your time with Uri Geller? Because I'm the world's greatest psychic. And to prove it to you, he said, I happen to know there's a drought going on right now. And and this would be February 1976 in California. He said, I will use my powers of psychokinesis to end the drought. And you will know that I did it because you will find every type of weather heel, uh, sleep, hail, snow, power blackouts, lightning strikes, and especially UFO sightings, which is one of my trademarks. And the local newspaper will publish a story in the next few days saying the drought is over, which would have been amazing because at the time The papers were running stories saying no end in sight to the drought. And well, all that happened, within like three days, the Palo Alto newspaper said, you know, weird weather, UFO sightings, hail, sleet, snow, everything. And Putoff and Targ were impressed. Uh, Targ wrote back to Owens and said, that was a great prediction. Thank you. And Owens responded by basically saying, hell no, it wasn't a prediction. I caused it with the help of the UFO aliens with whom I work. And at that point, uh, because they were getting funding from the CIA, Putoff and Targ were very eager to get this problem out of their office and out of their laboratory. They had enough problems with one controversial psychic, Uri Geller, they didn't need another. They wanted to be very low key. Uh, The the CIA, they knew, would not be pleased with a publicity hound like Ted Owens um, involving them. So they asked me if I would take all of their files on Ted Owens and do my own research on him, which I did. And 20 years later, the book got published. And the, the thing is that, how can I put it? I'm still not sure, after decades of looking into this, what the heck was going on. <laughs> it, probably something that defies our, our normal human language. Was he using just precognition? Was it psychokinesis? And to what extent were aliens involved? I good reason to think that it's some combination of all of that. And uh, I did, you know, extensive research with Ted Owens until he died in 1987. And it wasn't until 1999 that the book got published. And and the reason is because uh, for a long time, Publishers wouldn't believe that it was a nonfiction book. Actually, Scott Rogo and I wrote the first draft of the manuscript back in about 1979. And the first publisher we showed it to rejected it because he said, this is a lousy work of fiction. They just couldn't see it as nonfiction. Um, It's very bizarre and very hard for people to digest for that reason. And on top of that, there is a frightening aspect to the phenomenon because Ted Owens was this larger than life figure who would would like to brag about what he could do and when you know people don't like braggarts so he would brag I the great PK man I can do this and I can do that and then people would say oh you're a liar and he would then say well I guess I'll have to teach you a lesson And uh, the lessons were often very uncomfortable. People died sometimes. So um, for all of those reasons, it was very hard for people to approach that material. It still is, even today. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into it in greater depth than that, but uh, the book is still available. Uh, there are probably five or six interviews on the New Thinking Allowed channel uh, that if you wanted to dig into it further.
1: Thanks for that. No, I think it's a, uh, a very interesting topic, as I said, because I don't know hardly any remote viewers that don't encounter in some form or another these non-humans. And uh, it looks like they are in control of some kind of physical stroke non-physical craft and i think we're i think to be honest yeah over the last few years because of the revelations of uh uh you know the new york uh new york times articles and the tic tac nimitz revelations and you know the experiences of ufos going back decades or even hundreds of years now that tally with psychic experiences i think it's, big, it's bringing a new, a new era, I think, especially for, for Ufology. Ufology used to be laughed at as a subject, and, and remote viewing used to be more prominent and more uh, accepted. I think the tables over the last year or so have reversed, and remote viewings, less accepted now, and Ufology is more accepted. Um, but I do think that you know, as Ufology becomes more accepted with these revelations, and I know there are more on the way, that uh, psychic will be and psi will be dragged with it because, you know, the allegations are that the craft are, you know, controlled by psychic means, you know, when there's interactions between non-humans and, and humans, that always seems to be of a psychic nature as well. And it's, just, it's just really interesting for me that the, the top psi people, you know, like, like Ted Baker and Yori, you know, that seems to have some kind of really strong powers uh, also have these really strong ET connections. Have you experienced any other other people, for example, that have had really strong ET connections? I mean, you know, we know some like uh, uh, Ingo has very strong ET connections, for example.
2: Uh, Well, another good example um, would be the people of the Skull Group who are now, they've relocated to Spain, but they, in the context of uh, spiritualist uh, mediumship, tell me they've encountered ETs. ETs who have materialized uh, physically right there in their seances. So it's uh, there's an, a strong overlap between uh, the whole field of spiritualism and uh, extraterrestrials going back to the 19th century as, as a matter of fact.
1: Excellent. Uh, Christopher, you had your hand up just now. Did you want to ask a question or is your phone oh yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, let me see. hey
0: jeffrey how you doing hello so yeah I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of your show um i just had a quick question i guess i know you've interviewed so many people um I'm, and i i apologize if you got this question before but is there anyone that really you spoke to that really just kind of kind of maybe opened up your eyes in a different way or kind of inspired you kind of a big way in your life well, yes. I usually,
2: when people ask me that question, which is a question I get a lot, I say, Jean Houston, uh, she was a very big influence on my life, especially as I was first starting out in the field back in the 1970s. I, I regard her work as being first rate. She's still active. She's in her eighties now and she's still offering workshops and, and training and, uh, She's always been a huge inspiration to me.
0: Hmm. To check that out. Now. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
1: I have a question in the chat window here, and this is from Jim. He says, I've seen some uh, accounts that researchers who studied Yori Geller often experience hitchhiker effects where paranormal occurrences happened in their home, e.g. Uh, poltergeists or discarnate voices and visions. Have you happened across any research or views on paranormal experiences having a contagion like effect?
2: Well, back in the day when Uri Geller was uh, in the public spotlight and doing many public appearances, there was a phenomenon in the parapsychology literature that they were called mini Gellers. Geller would get on TV and do spoon bending and People in the radio or TV audiences would report that in their own homes, spoons and uh, knives and forks are bending, and clocks that hadn't worked for years were suddenly starting to work, and other kinds of paranormal phenomenon were occurring. Uh, this this was reported widely. And back in those days, I was on the radio in KPFA in Berkeley, and we would have Uri come into the station and uh, give interviews and we get all kinds of calls from viewers who were reporting this, which suggests that whatever Uri was doing is a capacity that's latent within humanity and sometimes just a simple demonstration on his part was enough to release it.
1: Yeah yeah i remember uh that happening in the uk quite a lot as well when he was on on tv shows it was always reported the next day in in all the local papers you know this clock was started this watch bent and and so on yeah excellent we have a question from pablo up next are you there pablo
4: sorry i was
1: talking on mute <laughs>
0: Just quick question here. I think I've asked this in other, in other calls, but probably it's not remote viewing, but it's more ESP-related or PK-related. But there have been many accounts, in, including Yuri Geller. Uh, I have an unofficial account regarding Ingo, but people doing, you know, what Ted Sirius was doing, you know, using Mind and projecting uh, images into film. H- have you heard anything about it or, or have you had any personal account of that?
2: Um, I have heard of other people doing it, but, um, nothing much recently now that, now that you mention it, uh, all, all I can say is, you know, there, there have been occasional reports. I do recall now that you mentioned it. My friend, Jim Hickman, did an experiment with Uri using, uh, film and cur- curly photography where Uri, uh, concentrated on having a um, like a bolt of lightning come out of his fingertips. And they actually captured that using uh, a curlian photography process or what they called at the time high voltage photography. But um, no, I don't know of any case comparable to that of Ted Sirios. He seems to be in a category all of his own.
0: Thank you very much for sharing that.
1: Excellent, guys. I have a question here from Eric in the chat. He says, uh, you mentioned that when you were originally learning remote viewing, you were taken to a shielded room to reduce the potential for EM interference. I wonder if you have any faults or are aware of any promising research that shows how technology uh, can be used to enhance psychic functioning.
2: It's a very good question. Uh, there have been, I'm sure you people are all aware of the uh, uh, work of James Spottiswood uh, with the uh, local sidereal time. that that would be one example, although, as I recall, Spottiswood is lately not so enthusiastic. He's always been wondering if the original report, of uh, 13 hours and 30 minutes local sidereal time might be uh, an artifact. I'm inclined to think, though, that if it's not an artifact, it would be very similar to the reports of working in a shielded room, because the thinking at the time was that 13 hours and 30 minutes local sidereal time is when the center of the galaxy is on the opposite side of the Earth from uh, where the viewer is. So perhaps the earth itself is shielding the viewers from any interference that might be coming from positronic emissions at the center of the galaxy. There was also some very interesting research. I interviewed Charlie Tart about it. He, did this study back in the 1960s where he was attempting to replicate some work originally done by Andrea Puharic using a Faraday cage which is another form of electronic shielding and the research is very technical very complex it has to do with the particular ways in which you ground the Faraday cage it might even involve certain pulsing of the Faraday cage uh, but that work uh, also seemed promising. I don't think it's been followed up on as uh, as a way to enhance extrasensory functioning. And there's some suggestions from Stuart Hameroff based on his research. Uh, he, you know, he, Stuart Hameroff has a theory about how consciousness operates in the brain, involving the uh, quantum mechanical uh, tiny microtubules inside of the neurons completely separate from the normal neural spikes that go on and based on his theories Hammeroff is uh, both developing scientific tests of the theory and we should learn about that very soon whether it's confirmed or refuted but also some technological innovations I think working with ultrasound now I don't I think his notion is to apply those to the treatment of Alzheimer's. I don't know that he's thinking at all about enhancing remote viewing, but there might be some potential applications there. There's an organization run by Jeffrey Martin, who is the person who has a program called the Finder's Course. Uh, achieving higher states of consciousness. He's affiliated with Sophia University in Palo Alto, California, and every year they have a big conference of the various companies that are engaged in building technologies for the purpose of enhancing consciousness functioning or brain functioning in one way or another. Uh, It's an up-and-coming field. I um, did, do have an interview on consciousness technologies with uh, a woman, uh, Nicole. I think it's Nicole Wallace, I believe, uh, who is organizes those conferences. But they have them on an annual basis, so there are always new developments, and there are probably well over a hundred companies manufacturing all kinds of devices. Uh, now that I think of it, another. Interview I did was with um, Eben Alexander, the fellow who, the near-death experiencer, whose new girlfriend, Karen Newell, uh, owns one of these companies. It's called Sacred Acoustics, using the binaural beat technology to put people into deep meditative states. Uh, Of course, I'm sure most of you know the Monroe Institute works with that technology as well. So actually... (laughs) I I don't use very much of that technology myself, but I think it's always good to uh, keep an eye on it. There could always be a major breakthrough.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, on your on your video channel, you have a huge swathe of uh, of topics and subjects. Um, I'm just interested in 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 your thinking behind uh what research or have you seen or experienced or interview people about that you feel would show the um the best likelihood to be developed for human potential over the next say, decade or so well
2: you know i'm actually very fond of the work that uh john Knowles and uh Deborah have done in their new book on associative remote viewing and using remote viewing for financial forecasting. I, I think it's very exciting. Uh, it does seem to me as I've been looking at progress in this field over the last 50 years that, that there is some incremental progress. It may take a long time before it reaches industrial strength, but I, I think uh, we're getting there.
1: Well, I you know, I have to agree with that because I've been, you know, with Niamh here and a few others, I've been part of a company that's been selling uh, predictive services to the cryptocurrency market for four years and uh, that's doing extremely well at the moment. So, yeah, I can concur with that one myself. I'm running out of questions in the chat window. Uh, Anita's got a question. If you'd like to go ahead, Anita.
7: Yeah, thanks. Hi, Jeffrey. So what parts of the brain you think are involved with remote viewing? And are there parts such as the frontal lobe, which we all consider our enemy in remote viewing, the the logic, which inhibit remote viewing? And which of the senses as well as parts of the brain do you think are having the intake of RV signal? And does that part then translate to other senses such as, are we feeling the signal and therefore sometimes seeing and smelling and hearing? What do you think about that? What have you read?
2: Well, I'm not inclined to ask that question. I, I think, actually, I tend to think you're asking the wrong question. Anita. Uh, I could be wrong, of course. But my thinking is that it's it, you, the way I'm interpreting your question is that it's kind of a reductionistic question. You're looking at parts. What If I only knew what part of the brain, then I can somehow make that part work for me better. Or, or if it's interfering, turn that part off. I tend to think more holistically. If you were to ask me We have not discovered an organ of psychic perception, and I personally don't believe such an organ exists. Uh, The question almost implies that the mind exists within the brain, uh, whereas from my point of view, the brain exists within the mind. So uh, it's not as if the parts of the brain aren't important. I think they're very important, but I think when it comes to psychic perception or remote viewing the entire body is involved the whole it's it's the whole of your psyche and your body is in your psyche Uh, so i don't know that may not be a very satisfactory answer for you but i kind of think that you'll get further by you know turning your question inside out
8: thank you
1: Thanks for that question, guys. Uh, I've run out of questions here in the chat window and in the hands-up window if, if everyone's uh, finished with your questions here tonight. No last questions from you guys?
4: Oh, no, I could ask some more questions.
1: Go ahead if, you, if you've if got something.
4: So um, I appreciate if you don't want to answer this question, Jeff, because I, maybe you don't want to pick favorites, but out of all of the remote viewers you've interviewed, who's your favourite?
2: Out of all the remote viewers, (laughs) oh my gosh. That that is a hard question to answer because everybody is so unique and everybody has wonderful stories. And I've experienced with personally with remote viewers, a hundred percent accuracy Uh, On detailed, complex targets. So uh, I think it's a a capability that uh, is, is, you know, surrounds us. It's it's all over. It's just largely unrecognized in our culture. If. I'm very fond of just about everybody in the psychic field. I have to tell you that. But if I had to name one name, I'll tell you who does come to mind is Lynn Buchanan. And uh, I know people have their uh, critique of Lynn, but uh, hes I think he's turned 80 recently. He's been around uh, from pretty close to the beginning of the field. He has a very big heart. Uh, He's the person who trained Laurie Williams, who's a great trainer, as far as I can tell, and a great remote viewer. Uh, So I have uh, personally, I have a lot of positive feelings uh, for Lynn. But I could say, you know, usually when I do interviews, you got to appreciate that it's a very intimate, loving experience. And uh, I try to approach each interview with an open heart. Uh, And so whoever whoever I'm with at the moment is usually the best.
4: That leads very nicely onto my next two questions. Uh, The first of which is, how do you choose your guests?
2: How do I choose the guests? Yeah. Well, there are many different ways. Uh, Some of them come to me through their publicity agents. Uh, Some of them I reach out and discover because I've Uh, noticed that they've written a book or an article that I think is interesting. Many of them are old friends whom I've known for decades. Uh, Sometimes people reach out to me, people I've never heard of. Uh, James Tunney, who has become a regular guest on the program, sent me his books. And I I read them and liked them and invited him to come to Albuquerque. So uh, there isn't any one way
4: And the next question, I think you answered beautifully already, which was, what makes you such a good interviewer? So no need to answer that one. I noticed John and Sasha have their headsets. Oh, before I go, I would like to take the only opportunity I will ever get in my life to say thank you for being with us, Jeff. It's been
3: wonderful. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Well, let me, you
2: know what, I'll answer the question you didn't really uh, think you needed to ask. Because there is a story behind it, now that I think about it. When I was 18 years old, I was a a bellhop at a resort in Wisconsin. I was working for the summer. So I'm very young and very impressionable and, you know, kind of an awkward teenager, basically, just out of high school. And one of the things I noticed at the time, is that there was another fellow, a bellhop, like myself, and he was just very, very popular. Everybody loved this guy. And I tried to figure out why. And one of the things I noticed was that when he was around people, he was always asking them questions. He showed a great interest in other people by asking, them to talk about themselves. And I realized at a, at a young age that that's a key to being popular. People love to have somebody take an interest in them. Whereas, you know, a young, selfish teenager might not even think about it. But, but I, uh, I think this bellhop, whose name I can't even remember, ultimately had a huge influence on me. So, uh, you know, learning to be a good listener is, is uh, a great skill and being willing to show a genuine interest in other people is an enormous skill that will take you
1: very far in life. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for that, guys. Uh, let's go with the last two questions and we'll start with John. John and then go with Sasha after. Yeah, if I could say
3: one thing about Anita's question, uh, Jeff, you must be aware of this, that Gary Nolan and others have found not only physical structures in the brain that apparently are there only for people with extreme psi abilities, but also they're doing genetic research and have found some psi markers of that. So I don't know if you wanna comment on that, but the other, just another quick ending is funding. Uh, are you, you know, there's so many billionaires around, why can't we get funding for uh, psi research? So I'll end it there. Thanks.
2: Oh, okay. Well, you asked two questions. To be honest, John, I haven't read any of that research. I've heard about it. And my first instinct is to be very skeptical of it simply because it goes against my own preconceptions. I could be wrong. I should study it more carefully. Um, I'm, but as I say, I, I don't think that, uh, that it's likely to pan out. Uh, I I could be very wrong about it. And the second question was about funding. And my attitude has been not to apply for funding. I I have, in my life, I have received over a million Mm dollars in funding. However, uh, it was not because I reached out for it. It's because uh, some funders reached out to me and um, it just happened. And I've always taken the attitude that um, I can do what I want to do without funding. And I'll, you know, or I can fund myself. And occasionally people have recognized that, you know, what you're doing looks great and we'd like to help you. And I've been uh, always open to that and happy for it. But um, in my experience, going out and beating the bushes to seek funding it has been a, a fruitless and time consuming effort. That, yeah, I learned how to write proposals and even really good proposals. Uh, but I often found that at the end of the day, the quality of your, your proposals seemed to mean a lot less than your political connections. <laughs> so okay, thank you very
3: much, Jeff. Appreciate it.
1: Uh, thanks for that one, guys. And Sasha, if you'd like to go with the last question.
5: Thank you. Um, I, this ties into, uh, what you were just talking about a little bit, uh, and it's kind of a twofold question. And again, I'm just talking it through, uh, it is really pre-planned. So, uh, bear with me a little bit. Um, so there are two things that I'm, that I'm wanting to know about because you speak to so many people in the parapsychology field. And I, I mean, you get a certain access to to the behind the scenes. Um, I'm wondering if some of the inhibition of progress, let's say, in the development of PSI at a more mainstream level has to do with one, maybe, maybe the view that this is something that's maybe a little bit too powerful in some ways Uh, to be let loose on the masses. And I'm not saying that I have that view, but I'm wondering if some people who do have a bit of influence over uh, what information gets out or what gets funded, maybe have that view. Um, And then in terms of, I guess this is kind of how I I came to that question because I look at, someone brought up Wilhelm Reich uh, and his machines uh, recently to me, so he was developing machines that did seem to operate in this in in this kind of a domain right tapping into things uh, in, in our realm and it, they burned hit well they, his laboratory was burned down all his research was in it um, it was all destroyed and he was put in jail um, and so and and I look there's the I think it's what's it called the Lakovsky uh, device uh, that also has some parallels with some of the 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 research that's been done on what can enhance ability. let's say. Um,
2: hey, did you know Lakovsky device?
5: No, Lakovsky device.
2: Lachowski.
5: Um, yeah it had rings of different metals and then electricity was passed through them and then the experiencer sat in between the rings um, and he also just—he's existing. He creates this device. It—it it starts having amazing results, and then he disappears, and his machines just get put in a basement and they gather dust, and nothing further comes of it, right? And so, I'm wondering—is um, it that people develop these things, and then they themselves are part of the the secrecy because maybe because they want to patent it or they want to make money from it, and so. They keep it secret so that that information doesn't come out. But then it's not it's not really a viable business idea because because si isn't mainstream yet. So then it just kind of goes nowhere. Or is it that there are um, maybe forces in place that are acting to prevent kind of the proliferation of these types of devices into, into the into the mainstream?
2: Well, it's a very complex question you're asking.
5: Yeah, I know. Sorry.
2: It's all right. <laughs> uh if i had to pick a single force contributing to the suppression of let's just stick to the parapsychology side of it of psychic functioning i would say it's our own subconscious mind it's not done consciously by the people who do it if you ask all the skeptics they're not consciously believers in parapsychology who are trying to suppress it they honestly believe that it doesn't exist I think they're quite sincere about that but they don't have any appreciation for the subconscious dynamics underlying their own belief but uh, the most insightful description of what's really going on here I had Back in the days when I was a college student and Arthur C. Clarke came to speak at Berkeley in the 1970s, a great science fiction writer who had recently published an article that was in Time magazine criticizing Uri Geller. So um, I raised my hand in the audience. I said, Mr. Clarke, do you believe in ESP? Because after, if you read his novels, they're full of it. Uh, like Childhood's End. And he said something that I will never forget. He was very clear. He said, no, I don't believe in ESP because I don't want anybody to read my mind. That is such a profound statement. It would take a long time to unpack. But consider this, Sigmund Freud, one of the great thinkers of the uh, 20th century, if I had to name five outstanding thinkers of the 20th century, Freud would be on the list, pointed out his great insight is that we don't even want to know what's in our own mind. The whole Freudian subconscious is filled with aspects about ourselves that are considered unacceptable in civilized society so we push them out of our awareness through a defense mechanism known as repression so if we don't want to know what's in our own mind how can we possibly tolerate the idea that another person a psychic person could do that could see things about us that we don't even want to see That's to me, the fundamental dynamic that's going on. And in order to overcome that dynamic, we have to have a society that's more spiritually evolved. We have to have a society of people who are at least willing to break through the Freudian subconscious and be aware of the things that we uh, have been taught from childhood to repress in our own consciousness.
8: I
5: wonder if if that has a little bit to do as well with not just this idea of the materialist versus the, the more spiritually inclined, but I really think it has to do with uh, a division between information processing and meaning processing. And I think maybe these people are processing information uh, as a priority rather than meaning. And so earlier I was talking about the, the cocktail party effect. And so if they are functioning in a mode where they're prioritizing information over meaning, then then they're not um, processing meaning at that low filter level, right? And so then they're not going to hear the equivalent of their name being said in a busy room to draw their attention because they're not processing meaning. They're only processing information. And I think uh, most remote viewers know that you're not really, you're getting meaning in some ways differently than just the information right so you you got the overpass but it ended up being what was it a garment rack a, a, a clothing rack um mm-hmm. so you're not i don't know that their their method of, of information acquisition is actually suitable to uh having these remote viewing experiences, having access to that information. So maybe that, that adds to their skepticism because they're prioritizing information over meaning. And so I think that, that maybe that's what has to change in our culture is that we've started putting all our emphasis on, on information um, because that's what our machines that, that we're currently using um, do best and, and only do, right? And so I think maybe that's a, an easier shift to bring about in society would be to shift people from information to meaning. So I think it'll be a lot harder to shift people from materialist reductionism to spirituality. So it might be an avenue of, I guess, I guess worth investigating to see if we can kind of push things uh, a little bit more in that sense maybe, I don't know.
2: I, that's a very good point. Um, it would make a great doctoral dissertation to, to look into that if you're a, um, psychologist, uh, I think it'd be a wonderful topic. I did do an interview decades ago with uh, Theodore Rozak, the sociologist, who had written a book called The Cult of Information uh, about how our whole society is infected by by this, that we you know, have, have lost track of the difference between information, knowledge, and wisdom. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Uh, I think we should leave it there because we've uh, kept Jeffrey for two hours now. And on behalf of everyone here, Jeffrey, I just want to say thank you for your videos and thank you for spending these two hours sharing your experiences and knowledge with us. It's been much appreciated.
2: My pleasure.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you, everyone. Have a good weekend. Uh, What I'll do is I'll put the video of this up as soon as possible for you to review it again. Uh, again thank you for all, all for joining us and um, for you guys for asking your interesting questions as well
6: yeah, thank you very much that yeah, really enjoy. was amazing thank you so much very
4: much yeah, thank, you.
0: Thank, thank you, thank thank you. Care. Take care very much
4: wonderful i hope bye. you come back again
8: bye everybody bye. Bye.
0: thanks for listening to the signal line a remote viewing podcast Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.